0: Well, good morning. It is an amazing blessing to be here with you today. We pray everyone has had a good week so far. Kids are back in school. Things are kind of getting back into a normal routine. And you woke up this morning and made the choice to worship an awesome God. And that's a great thing. We especially want to welcome any visitors that we may have with us this morning. We want to say a very heartfelt welcome to you as well. And thank you so much for choosing to be here with us today. This morning we're going to be talking, uh, taking a look at a, at a topic that I think is very important in today's society and especially important to Christians in a society where, quite frankly, Christianity is, is watered down. It's watered down into something that provides temporary emotional pleasure, something that exists solely to fulfill our own hearts and takes no interest in the idea of actually pleasing and serving God. In fact, Gallup did some research on this exact topic and and found some numbers that seemed to be quite interesting. They found that 81% of Americans believe in God. Now this is a very generic question, just simply asking, do you believe in God? As you can see on the screen, as the questions get more specific, the number progressively dwindles down. But what I want to focus on this morning... Is that in 2022, in the society we live in, 81% of Americans say they believe in God. If you take the full total of the American population and do this simple calculation around it, it's about 271,450,000 people, give or take a few thousand, believe in God, according to this survey. Now that's pretty good, right? But here's another statistic. According to LifeWay research, only 28% of Americans attend church. And that's not great, right? Unfortunately, the problem comes with the wording. The question asked in this statistic was, do you attend services at least once or twice a month on average? So this number, 28%, does not even do justice to the number of people that actually attend services every single week. That number I would submit to you is probably astronomically lower it's disheartening isn't it it's not a good looking number when we say we live in an unchristian society sometimes this is what we're referencing but what i want us to notice from these statistics is that folks in today's society the truth is we live in a world full of belief but unfortunately live in a world that lacks true christian faith and obedience to god's will We have a lot of people, maybe even in our own families, in our own homes, who believe in God, but they don't have faith in God. Maybe you're here this morning and you believe in God, you trust God, but you don't obey God. You don't have faith in God. Maybe deep down you believe that God is real, you believe that He sent His Son to save you. Maybe you've even gone as far to obey the gospel, but your day-to-day life, your conversations, your choices, your attitude... Your marriage, the way you parent, does not reflect that belief and does not show faith and obedience. This morning we're going to discuss the idea of moving from a state of mere belief into a state of faith and trust in God's will. Oftentimes you may hear people around you use these two terms in a like manner. They might even use faith and belief in a synonymous relationship, claiming they mean the exact same thing. And sometimes, even in Scripture, we can find faith and belief to be used interchangeably. And there are a couple things we need to understand as we begin this topic this morning. Number one, belief and faith, at least in a modern-day terminology, are not the same. Belief and faith are not the same. You see, Oxford defines belief as an acceptance that a statement is true or that something exists. Oxford Languages also defines faith as complete trust trust. Or confidence in something. By worldly definitions, these two things mean completely different ideas. They convey convey different thoughts, don't they? And in context of today's society, we see a major difference between them, don't we? We have a lot of people who simply believe that God is real, but those same people don't have Christian faith. I would submit to you this morning that true Christian faith, true obedience to God's will, is completely different than the modern-day terminology of belief, thinking something to be true. But what about Scripture? The word belief in all of its forms is found 249 times in the Bible, 20 in the Old Testament and 229 in the New Testament. The most common form is found in the Greek word pistio. Pistio is defined by the Greek word, it means to think to be true to entrust another, to place confidence in, and lastly, to have faith. But the usage in the context of this word has several different forms. In fact, if you take a look at the worldly definition of belief that we just took a look at, several verses actually fit that idea, an acceptance of facts. For example, Jesus, when referring to the end times, says that if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, there he is, do not believe it. In Luke 1 and 20, it says, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 18 says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. You see, what we have here is the first part of the definition, Greek lexicon 31.35, to thank to be true. You see, what we, what we have here is Jesus says, Do not believe. In other words, don't think it's true when someone tells you they're Christ in the end times. Zacharias has told you that he will be silent because he did not believe God's words. You remember the story, right? He's old. There's no way his wife can have a child. He did not believe the words, he did not think those words were true. Paul says to the Corinthians that these divisions he's heard about he partly or somewhat thinks they might hold some validity, right? To think to be true. Another form of this word is found in lexicon 31.102, and it simply means belief in confines of obedience to the gospel. For example, Mark 16 and 16 references this usage when it says whoever believes in context of the gospel and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe, once again, in context of the gospel, will be condemned. In verse 17, we see another usage in 31.85, which means to have faith. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. That's what it means. Belief meaning faith there. So they can be used interchangeably in some context. But what about faith? What's the difference? The Greek word for faith is similar to the Greek word for belief. It comes from the same root and is the word pistis, meaning the the conviction of the truth of anything, belief. In the New Testament of conviction, respecting man's relationship to God and divine things, generally with the idea of truth and holy fervor born of faith joined with it. As you can see here, faith involves something much deeper than simply thinking something is true. It involves action and involves obedience. Hebrews 11 and 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Think about the entirety of Hebrews 11 following that first verse. Descriptions of action-based faith and obedience. Noah builds an ark, a work of faith. Abraham leaves the land where his father Terah is and follows God. Moses chooses to be aligned with the children of Israel instead of Egypt by faith. And we can go on and on and on talking about examples of faith that is followed by obedience and action. But what we really have is there's a difference between faith and belief. Faith is an often described as belief with action. And this is not a new concept to us at all. In fact, James speaks of this very concept in chapter 2 of James. He says this starting in verse 14. He said, What doth it profit, brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them the things that are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And verse 19, I guess we got one ahead there. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You see, James appeals to logic here and says faith without works is dead. True Christian faith, faith in God will yield results and it will yield fruit. It's accompanied by action and leads us to obedience. Christian faith, having the faith it takes to please God is completely different from thinking something is true. The word says belief and having a personal relationship with God and believing that he exists are different things. Take a look back at verse nineteen in James chapter two for a second. It says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Believest there in verse nineteen is the first form of belief that we talked about in thirty one point eight five, to think to be true. Jesus says, Even the devils think that God is real, right? That's pretty obvious. You're not making any steps closer to being a child of God if you simply believe that he's real. And he contrasts that point in verse 20 with the idea of having faith. And that leads us into the second point of the morning that simple belief alone is not enough. And I'll say it again, belief alone is not enough. There's a lot of people who stop right there, isn't there? Think, well, I believe in God, that's enough for me. He'll save me. Jesus dealt with something similar in, John, or in uh, John chapter 12 and verse 42. It says, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus had preached to them and they believed that he was the son of God, but they wouldn't confess. The problem is belief alone is not enough. So if belief in the sense of, of thinking Jesus is real is not enough, what's the relationship between belief and faith? If we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, as Paul says, do we even need belief? I think the writer in Hebrews does a good job of summarizing and reconciling these two thoughts together. He says, in verse 11 or in verse six of chapter 11, he says, "But without faith." It is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. As you can see, the writer in Hebrews gives us some insight into how these two terms work hand in hand. He says we must believe that he is to have faith. In other words, belief is sort of a stepping stone into developing faith. You can't have true Christian obedient faith without first believing that God is real, right? Simple enough. So with this understanding, how do we transition from being a believer that God exists into being a faithful Christian that pleases God? How do we move from belief into faith? The first way to take us from belief into faith is simply by reading the Word of God. All relationships have to have effective communication to function. And oftentimes, people claim to have tremendous faith, but haven't opened a Bible in years. Romans 10 and 17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We have to read and learn from the Scriptures to identify what God desires. And the truth is, I could spend the next few minutes telling you how important it is to read your Bible, how important it is to develop faith in studying the Word. But the truth is, the issue is that we don't, not that we don't put in the time, it's that we don't know how to effectively study the Word of God and learn from it and increase our faith. So we're going to switch gears for a few minutes and talk about how to study the Bible to increase our faith this morning. Studying the Bible, no matter what style you're using, you're going to focus on three different things. And those three things are observation, interpretation, and application. Observation, interpretation, and application. What does the passage say? What does the passage mean? And what, how does that passage apply to me? Or what does that passage mean to me? So let's focus on the observation point of study. This is where you bring in your who, what, where, when, and how. Let's take, for example, the book of Romans in chapter 1. This is an easy example that gives us all those things here. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1 says this. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God called to be saints grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can tell that the who, what, where, when, and how of the book of Romans is pretty much found in the introduction to the chapter. And if you're familiar with Paul's writings, you can find most of those in his letters that he writes. Paul introduces himself in verse 1 and says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's your who. Look in verse 7, it says he is writing to all those that be in Rome, specifically those called to be saints. In other words, the Christians in Rome. That's your who. Your where is obviously found, the Romans. That's where he's writing to, Rome. Your what is found in verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Your why is found in verse 5. He is an apostle appointed for the obedience to the faith of all nations for his name. As to the when, the context is sometimes covered in different books. And in this context, it's covered in Acts when outlining Paul's missionary journeys. We see clues in Acts chapter 20. It shows us that Paul is in Greece at the time. And by Greece... They mean Corinth, and he abode there three months. And we can figure out that he was probably in Corinth when he wrote Romans. But during this observation phase, we need to be specifically clued in to certain words and conjunctions, such as for and therefore, metaphors, similes, descriptive words, and take notes on those things. Especially note any contrasting contrasting phases, such as chapter 1 and verse 1 called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Think of 1 Corinthians 13, such as love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Note contrasting ideas. Read it through multiple times. Pick a different thing to focus on each time. Focus on descriptions first. Read it again. Focus on verb usage. Pick out repeated verbs. And after we've got a good idea of what the passage says in the observation part, we'll move into the interpretation and application phase, which is generally what we find to be the most difficult. When discussing interpretation and application, what we're really talking about is fundamental hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of ancient text interpretation specifically in a Bible context, so the knowledge of that study. Basically, the goal of hermeneutical analysis is to bridge the gap between what my mind thinks this passage mean and what the original author wanted the original receivers to take from his word. But what we have with this interpretation phase is called exegesis. Sometimes you might hear people say the exegesis of a passage is such and such. And all that really means is finding the interpretation of the Bible. It means reading out of the text, reading what it means and figuring out what that says to me. Eisegesis on the other hand is different from exegesis and that means reading into the text That means I have a preconformed notion of what this text means and i'm going to make it fit What I want it to mean in my life. That's eisegesis You might hear this term coined as you're taking that passage out of context This is why interpretation is almost entirely derived from context Now let's talk about what that means for a second We can have two different types of context, which are called internal and external context. And each of these have different levels of specificity. For example, take John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. A very easy verse we all recognize. The internal context is John explaining this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus And he says, whoever believes on him shall not perish. So our internal textual context is salvation, right? So if I just stop there, I don't consider any other context in the passage. I'm good to go, right? All I have to do is believe. Belief is enough. It's textual context, the context of the verse. Jesus, salvation. But what about the paragraph or chapter context? Well, now we see that Jesus is in an interaction between him and Nicodemus and is discussing salvation under Christ. And the full chapter context is speaking of being born of water. Now, how about the context of John's writings as a whole? Well, we see a consistent theme of John speaking the word belief to mean the same consistent, obedient faith that involves being born of water through baptism. That's why this word belief here means belief in obedience to the gospel, lexicon 31.102. So in context, the encounter that John is speaking of fits his normal writing style. But what about the context of the entire Bible? This is where we bring in overarching principles. Water and being born again, baptism is an overarching principle. So we can begin connecting John chapter 3 and its chapter context to other passages such as where the, the apostles teach people to repent and be baptized into water. We see Peter talk about a similar doctrine to that of Noah and can connect the idea in 1 Peter 3 and 21 that being born again of water, meaning baptism into Christ, now saves us. So what's really being said by belief here is belief in the context of obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes belief, confession, repentance, and baptism, Right. Not that belief alone is enough. That would be eisegesis. Now we can also look at external context and realize that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now John tells you that in chapter 3 and verse 1. But what we can learn from cultural external context is that these men were holy keepers of the law. These men devoted their whole life to learning the mosaical law. So it's easy to see why Jesus spends so much time in John chapter 3 connecting Mosaical law in this discussion with Nicodemus. In other passages, it's helpful to understand things such as geographical context in the Old Testament. Sometimes it helps with Paul's missionary journeys and understanding where Thessalonica is in relation to Berea. Cultural context can also help, like we just talked about. Historical context can also give us clues, such as Jesus's. Death on the cross. We can learn of what the Roman government did to men when they crucified them. And understand that he was whipped with a cat of nine tails. And use historical context to understand why he's so anxious about going to the cross. Sometimes commentaries and things of the sort can help understand passages as well. But I encourage you to read it through a few times. Get your own meaning from it. Get the context, do the observation, do the interpretation before you ever grab a commentary. Some commentaries are helpful and some commentaries are very unhelpful. My dad and I have a joke that we read certain commentaries to understand what a passage does not mean. So some commentaries are, are not useful. Keep that in mind. The last phase that we have is application. This means how does the scripture cause us to change our life? Second Timothy three and 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Amen. You see, we find application in, in how we live our lives, how we worship, how to obey the gospel. We find reproof in that the Bible points out our failures. In fact, the Bible includes list and list of sins and detailed descriptions of those sins and points out that we're doing something wrong, points out where we fail. But God doesn't stop there. He also uses his word for correction, allowing you to learn how to battle those sins in your life and figure out the correct way to live. And sometimes even the answers to specific problems and how to correct those. And then, of course, the Bible is our guide for obtaining and living a righteous Christ-like life. Brethren, we need to use the tool at our disposal. We need to have God's word sitting in front of us on a daily basis. That wasn't always the case for Christians. We need to seek his counsel, seek his wisdom, heed his instruction to build and increase our faith. I challenge you this morning to dive into the word. If you don't know where to start, try Revelations. Just kidding, don't start there. Start in the Gospels, start in Romans, start somewhere that talks about Jesus, what he's done for you. Move from a mere state of belief into faith. The second thing that we need to recognize is that we can transition from mere belief into faith through mutual edification and fellowship with other Christians. I cannot possibly stress enough this morning how important it is to a new Christian are new to the church to get involved and be present when the saints are gathered. Turn with me to the book of Philippians in chapter 1. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 25. He says this, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Some context on what Paul is saying here. Paul had just finished a heartfelt description of an internal struggle that he's dealing with in his own mind. He says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He speaks of this struggle for living for Christ, spreading the gospel, planting seeds that will lead to salvation, contrasted with the idea of gaining his own eternal salvation. Paul's nearing the end of his life. He spent years in prison, so logically, he's thinking about what a blessing it would be to receive his eternal reward. To see a Savior face to face. Have you considered that this morning? Have you ever thought about what it will be like to stand before the very man that took your sins and had them nailed into his hands on the cross? Standing before your God, seeing him face to face, not having to plead for your life, not having to beg for mercy because Jesus has already paid that debt for you. Instead of God looking at you for what you really are, seeing your sin, your failures, your shortcomings of his standard, he looks at you and he sees the blood of his son. And you hear the words you long to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Can you even imagine the awesomeness of that day? Seeing your loved ones again? Embracing them with open arms? I want you to know this morning that I long for that day. I can't wait for that day can't wait to see my grandfathers again, to see my Uncle Chad again, all of our brothers and sisters who have passed before us. That overwhelming sense of joy, that longing to meet your Savior face-to-face is exactly what Paul is going through right here. You know, Paul had done a lot of stuff, endured a lot of trials and persecutions for the kingdom of God at this point. He's ready to receive his reward. But notice what he says in verse 25. I will abide with you for your furtherance and joy of faith. What a heart that is, right? So what does Paul recognize here? It's a very simple truth. That fellowship with like believers is a catalyst and serves to strengthen and grow your faith. And brethren, that fact is just as true today as it was when Paul wrote it down to live a life that pleases God, to live a life that moves from mere belief into faith, we have to surround ourselves with positive Christian influences that will keep us on track. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this to the church at Ephesus, and he says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ that we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Folks, there are unimaginable benefits and growth that come with being involved in the church, being surrounded by Christ-like people. Paul says we become members of this body and we become unified. We learn to be better Christians. We get edified. We're lifted up. Paul says here that Mutual edification edification doesn't really have to mean many speakers. While it does include that, it means much more than that. It's when we praise God together in song. It's when you walk in the front door and you're greeted with a smile and a hug. It's when you sit down to enjoy some good food and start having a conversation about the Word of God. It's the Wednesday night service that you attend after having a bad day at work that lifts you up to finish the week. There's a love and a fire and a zeal in this congregation for God that's so vast, you can't help but smile when you leave the building. And I want you to know this morning that if you aren't making these services a priority in your life, you're missing out. If you aren't making this family here a priority in your life, you're missing out. And you're losing precious opportunities to strengthen your faith through fellowship with others. Now, although we discuss this idea of being in the assembly and fellowshipping with others and, and how great that is and how it's a, it's a way to move from belief to faith, understand this morning that we do need to mention that being in the assembly of the church, worshiping God is not an optional thing as a Christian. The world will tell you that church and being involved in church with other believers is good if I feel like doing it. Or if I have time, that might be a decent thing to do. Go join the services. Going to church every once in a while is okay, as long as I have a personal relationship with my God. Brethren, we need to make one thing clear. Your God does not see it that way. Belief in him and not acting on it, not worshiping him in the assembly every week is not enough. The writer in Hebrews says this, he says in verse 19 of chapter 10, he says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. But exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. For, or in connection with the previous point, if we sin willfully. After that we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful Looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. The writer here in Hebrews is using expository teaching referencing back to the Mosaical Law as he does most of the book of Hebrews to prove that Jesus is better. He teaches how we don't need to make sacrifices in the tabernacle anymore, but instead drawing near to the house of God, assembling ourselves together. But notice what he says in verse 26. For if we sin willfully. When he says for there, like we just mentioned, in connection with the previous point. Now what's the previous point? Provoke one another unto good works and don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Understand very bluntly this morning that we are commanded to assemble and worship God on the first day of the week whenever the elders call for an assembly. And if we are commanded to do something and willingly choose not to do so, make no doubt about it, It is a sin. God isn't going to ask you to do something that isn't going to help you. He understands the necessity of unity in the church, and he understands the importance of fellowship in your walk with Christ. If we want to move from belief into faith, we have to seek to be edified. Edify others and be present and involved in the worship and fellowship here. Thirdly, I believe one of the greatest ways to move from mere faith into belief is changing our perspective. By changing our perspective. What does that mean? I think Paul gives us some insight in his letter to the Romans in chapters 5 and 6. He says this in verse 19 For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, speaking of Christ, shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where the sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul explains this concept of sin versus righteousness to the people of Rome. He explains how the law showed sin, but where that sin abounded, God's grace abounds much more. He then gives a comparison between sin and grace. He said, sin leads to death, whereas grace leads to righteousness. That's the comparison. Now, isn't that amazing? What a wonderful God we have. But this comparison, unfortunately, generates some misconceptions that, quite frankly, we still deal with today. In verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul asks a very important question along this same line. He says this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that as many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Verse 11, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the misconception the Jews were having or possibly going to have is that since the sacrifice had been made, and they no longer had to sacrifice for their sin, and that grace was going to abound more than sin, what's the point in being righteous? If every sin I commit is still going to be covered by that sacrifice, it doesn't matter how much I sin, how bad of a life I live, how many times I attend church, how many times I help the widows, how many times I help the orphan, none of that matters because Jesus' sacrifice covers it all. Does that sound familiar? The truth is the world is full of people that believe that same thing. Right? Millions of people believe in God and think along that same line of thinking. At some point they attend a service and maybe even attend a church that teaches them the correct plan of salvation. They're baptized for the remission of sins, but all too often people just go back to their normal lives, don't they? They'll go back to a life of sin with this false sense of security, thinking it doesn't matter what I do now because I've been buried with Jesus and his blood covers everything I could ever do. They then take Romans 8 and 38 out of context and say nothing can separate me from the love of God, so once I've been saved, I don't have to live for Christ anymore. Paul says this, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid. You think Paul's serious here? You better believe it. He says how should we who are dead to sin or have buried our sin in the watery grave of baptism, awake not to walk in newness of life, but just awake to keep on sinning. Paul's point is it doesn't make any sense. In all reality, the issue that most people run into in today's society is this. People put their own pleasure above serving God, and the misconception that it doesn't matter what kind of life you live has diluted and perversed the gospel into something that doesn't even remotely resemble Christianity. What Paul is telling the Romans here is essentially to change your perspective. Instead of chasing and constantly seeking my own pleasure, following my own heart, chasing my own desires, in contrast, live a life that glorifies God. We have to change our perspective. We have to renew our minds and see sin for what it is. It's an abomination to the Lord. It's something that hurts God. It's something that damages our relationship with him. It separates us from him. And brethren, even if you've been saved, even if you've been buried with him in baptism, sin can still rule your life. And that leads us to the final point of the morning. All of the things that we've talked about today can take your belief into faith, can strengthen the faith you have. Connecting and studying God's word, mutual edification, being involved in the services with fellowship. Changing your perspective and living a life to serve God. All of those are great, but I want you to know this morning, all of those points are null and void if we don't get the last one. Folks, the first thing we have to do to move from belief to faith is obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't have faith in Jesus without being a Christian. Paul says this in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 7. He says, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Folks, there will be a day when we stand before our creator. And that creator is going to judge what we've done in this life. He's going to look at your sin, your failures, and there will be a decision that is made. And that decision has one of two outcomes. One is found in this verse. Taking vengeance and flaming fire on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, in my line of work, I get to deal with a lot of trauma and burn patients. And one thing they all describe is the same. There's no other pain that could possibly fall on them that's worse than fire scorching your flesh they speak of it moving through the layers of flesh continuously finding nerves to reach and send impulses to your brain causing more pain stacked on more pain all they want is for it to stop one man it was bad enough he didn't care which way whether he was rescued from the car or whether it was death he just couldn't bear the pain any longer just wanted a way out His body, when he arrived at the hospital, was scorched up and down. Flesh was falling off, black and necrotic all the way around. Here's the reality of that story. He was in that fire less than two minutes. What do you think it will feel like when the very creator of mankind, the creator of fire, takes the wrath that he's kindled against your sin and enacts that wrath on your soul? and there will be no one to pull you out of that fire. There will be no one to give you any kind of relief, any kind of help from the heat, immense pain and agony as God executes His wrath on your soul for the sin that you have in your life. Or there's option two. Second Peter three and eight says, "But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The God who made your very soul doesn't want you to perish and rot for eternity in that lake of fire. But on the contrary, wants a relationship with you. Wants you to come to repentance, turn away from your sin, and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing in him, confessing him, repenting of your sins, and being buried with him in baptism, putting your old self to death, and rising to walk in newness of life. Maybe this morning you realize that deep down all you really have is belief, but your faith is wavering, or maybe you don't even really have true Christian faith. This morning is the perfect time to start. Open the word of God. Study what God wants for your life. Be present in the assemblies. Fellowship. Learn from other Christians. Let iron sharpen iron. Change your perspective into a life that serves God. Put sin to death and focuses on Christ. This morning you have an opportunity to become right with God. If you walk out that door today knowing you have sin in your life that's not been paid for by the blood of Jesus, deep down you know what awaits you. But it does not have to be that way. Your God is rich in mercy. And Christ stands ready to be the propitiation for your sin. To bear your punishment so you don't have to. Will you make that decision this morning? If you will, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.